And please turn to 1 Samuel 24. Eight to ten-year-olds, you are dismissed to your class. Coming to the end, 1 Samuel. David's still on the run in 1 Samuel 24. And please follow along as I read. We'll go through the entire chapter this morning. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face down to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
I've entitled this message, The Long Wait for Justice. We hate waiting, don't we? We hate waiting. We moved here seven years ago, and you could go from 89A down Willow Creek down to downtown in no time at all. And now everyone's moving here, and we've got to wait on Willow Creek. Have you been near the Fry's north part of town on a school day in the morning? Waiting, waiting, waiting. We get a phone, and we're looking up information, and if we have to wait five seconds for a signal to go to space and come back, we are frustrated. That should take one second. We don't like to wait. And it's kind of humorous to think about the ways that we get impatient, but what about when there are real challenges and real difficulties, real persecutions, and you've simply got to wait for the Lord to do justice in His time. Sometimes He rights wrongs in this life, and sometimes He waits and will write them in the next. Waiting isn't hard. Waiting is hard for the child of God. Waiting on God's promises to come to fruition is difficult, is not easy. And David has been waiting to be king. It's been a number of years now since he was anointed to be the next king, and he's still not the king. But it's not as if he's waiting at a palace as second in line or waiting at his father's house, Jesse's house, just tending the sheep. He's waiting while the current king is trying to kill him. He's waiting in caves. He's waiting in the wilderness. He's waiting and trying to hide by staying with enemies who are not as threatening to him as the current enemy, his own king. He's waiting, and it's difficult to wait. He's waiting as one who's being hunted down. And this passage here, again, as many of them do in 1 Samuel, shows us the contrast between David, the righteous one, and Saul, the one who should be righteous, but in fact is wicked. So again, we have a contrast between David and Saul. David waits for the throne. He trusts in God. He's merciful. And Saul is fearful, is self-protective to a fault, and who is murderous. So there's this contrast between David and Saul. Again, Samuel told Saul, you're going to have the kingdom like, you're, like, like you've torn my robe when Saul was grabbing onto Samuel's robe. Like you've just torn my robe, your kingdom's going to be torn. And it's going to be given to another who's more righteous than you, who's better than you. And we know that that's David. And so we're seeing this waiting period. We're seeing examples of why David is the right king. As David waits in caves, waits in the wilderness, we see David's godliness come out. We see his uh, mercy come out in this passage. We see his loyalty to the king. We see his righteousness come out. And as Saul tries to kill David and hold on to his kingdom, we see all of his wickedness come out. It's a fascinating study to see what righteousness looks like in the teeth of adversity and what Wickedness looks like when you think you're going to lose something that you want to have. But the righteous sufferer must wait for God's justice. This isn't just an Old Testament truth. This is a New Testament truth as well. 
That's why 1 Peter, a book about how to live as an exile in a hostile world, it starts out talking about the hope that you've been given by God since you were born again. You've been born again, Christian, to a living hope. You've been born again to have a positive outlook on the future, a confidence about the future. So waiting is something the people of God have always done. From the time God sent the first announcement of a Messiah, Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve were waiting, waiting, waiting for a Savior, waiting for a Deliverer. We now, on the other side of Jesus coming, are now waiting for His second return. He came, He accomplished salvation, and then He gave a period of time where He said, tell everybody so they can be rescued, one to me, and we can build this large choir of worshipers for all eternity. That's what this time period is. But even as we're doing that, doing that missions work, doing that evangelistic work, we're waiting for His return to right all wrongs and to bring us home. So we wait. I'm going to walk through the passage without giving you any points, and then at the end we're going to look at three lessons for the righteous sufferer. Three lessons for the righteous sufferer. But let's jump into the passage and see Uh, The first paragraph here, the first paragraph talks about what happened in the cave, what went on, and then at the end of the first paragraph from verses 8 to 22, we hear David speak to Saul about what just happened in the cave, and then Saul speak to David about what's happened in the cave, and so we get the description, and then we hear David speak, and then Saul speak. That's where the chapter takes us. Let's look at chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Remember last week? Saul was on the same mountain that David was at. You almost get the sense as the way it's written that Saul was just about to grab him, and then a messenger comes and says, Hold on, there's a greater threat. The Philistines are over here. We've got to go over there. So Saul leaves, this is God's providence all over the place, Saul leaves chasing David, goes away, takes care of the Philistines, and here we pick up the story, some time has passed, and Saul has returned from attacking the Philistines, and he's told that David's in the wilderness of En Gedi, which is the last place we heard that David was at, in this oasis near this, these rock-like mountains near the Dead Sea. So Saul knows where he's at got done with the Philistines, let's progress on and get back to the business of killing David. Verse 2, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. So he's going to a specific place in En Gedi. He knows exactly because of this messenger where David is. But I want you to see Saul amasses a great army. All throughout 1 Samuel, haven't we seen the, the faithful people of God are under-weaponized, right? David and his, just has a sling, and he defeats Goliath, who's got this armor, and he's a giant, and the Philistines are in an optimal position, but David wins. The man of God wins. We, we see this. We see a barren woman in Hannah who's, who's the victim of taunts to her husband's other wife who has children. She's, she's got nothing, got little. She's the lowly one, but she comes out the victor. This is a pattern throughout 1 Samuel. And here again, we hear that there's someone that's stronger. There's someone that on paper should win the battle. Saul has chosen not just 3,000 men. He, he, he's got 3,000 chosen men, hand-picked men. 
you may be good with a spear, you're good at leading us up rocks, whatever it may be. Saul chose these men, chose them to go and get David. Now remember, at this point, how many men David has? 600. Went from 400 to 600. And while Saul's men are chosen men, David just kind of got dealt with the people that came to him. And as I told you before, they're the ones that owed the government money. They're the, the, low, the low ones of society. They're not the ones you might handpick to be in your fighting force. So David's got 600 guys that he just has because the Lord gave them to him. And Saul's got 3,000 chosen. Saul should win. Saul should kill David. Doesn't happen. Verse 4. Uh, verse 3. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Just the honesty of the Bible. Here we go. That's what the Bible does. Okay? It's not sanitized. It's just real life. Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, the same cave. There are lots of caves in this region. Saul goes in, coincidentally, no, providence of God is all over this. Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself, and these caves are huge caves. David and his men, are all 600 in there? Maybe. Maybe it's just some of David's men. But David and a group of his men, David and his men are in the innermost parts of the cave. So Saul doesn't know this, and it's like when you walk into a room and, and it's dark and you've been in a light room and you walk into a room and you can't see anything in the room, but someone that's in that room that's in the dark can see you kind of with the light behind you. That's what it's like here. Saul can't see into the cave, but the people in the cave, the innermost parts, the dark parts of the cave can see who comes in, and it's Saul. Then David arose, oh, I'm sorry, verse 4, I keep getting ahead of myself, the story's so good, I just can't wait. Okay. Verse 4, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So David's men are saying, see, the Lord's given Saul into your hands. Del Ralph Davis says, they were probably singing, this is the day, this is the day, they're telling David, now's the day the Lord's giving you, giving him into your hands. Now, the Lord was not giving Saul into his hands. The Lord was clear that David being king would come on his timetable, God's timetable. God's not giving Saul into David's hand right now. Actually, we understand by looking at this and the rest of the book, God's allowing David to show mercy to Saul. David is showing an ex us an example of one who endures suffering and trusts the Lord to take vengeance. He won't take vengeance himself. He's trusting the Lord to bring vengeance to Saul in his timing. He trusts the Lord in the timing of when he's going to become king. He's not going to take that into his hands. He knows it's wrong to attack the king and to kill him so that he can get his way. He's going to wait for the Lord's timing. But bad counsel comes, and they're telling David, see, he's here, go get him. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Saul most likely would have taken off his robe to relieve himself, so it's laying there. David stealthily cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, th that's not just like he cut someone's jacket. Remember, the robe is a sign of kingship. This particular robe Saul would have had is a sign of his kingship. 
You see this in the Old Testament, the ancient Near East, a king wearing a particular robe. That's why earlier on when Jonathan takes off his robe, it might have been a robe that signified his, his coming kingdom one day. So Jonathan would maybe be the king one day because he's the son of Saul. Jonathan takes it off and gives it to David. That's a sign. That's not just, I think you're cold, you need some warmth. It's a sign. You are king, I'm not. You're going to be the next king, I'm not. Well, here, David cuts off the robe. And even, again, earlier on in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul grabs onto Samuel's robe and it rips. And Samuel says, see that? That's a sign. That's what's going to happen to your kingdom. It's going to be torn from you. Well, here, David cuts off Saul's robe. That would have been a signal. I'm ending your kingdom. I'm going to take over as king. It would have been a threat. Hey, be careful. This will happen to you. Me getting at you because of what you've done to me. I will, I will destroy you or I could be a threat to you. That's what David does initially. But then notice, right after he does that, the writer of 1 Samuel says this, and afterward David's heart struck him. That's, that's conscience language. He thought, I shouldn't have done that. He regrets the decision because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, and put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. David's going to refer to Saul being the Lord's anointed at least three times. David repeats this. First, he says it to his men twice. Later, he's going to say it to Saul. Forbid that I should go against the Lord's anointed. Lord made you king. I shouldn't be doing this. So David kind of gives him a little wake-up call and cutting off the corner of the robe, and then immediately David's convicted by that and turns to his men and says, I should not have done that. I'm not here to attack the Lord's anointed. Verse 7, so David persuaded his men with these words. They followed the lead of David. They weren't going to go after Saul and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Notice David's commitment to the Lord's timing here. David's committed to God's timing. It it would have been commonplace in that culture to, if you want to be king, to kill the existing king. Some might have looked down on it. Even David's men would not have looked down on that. They would have hailed him as king right away. David was going to wait Because he knows God is the one that puts Saul on the throne. And when God God takes him away in his own time, in his own way, then I'll become king. But not before that. It's a reminder to us that the same thing holds true in today's day and age. New Covenant passage from Romans 13.1 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It's not always an easy command, is it? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why is the question? Don't you know who the governing authorities are? Why? Paul anticipates your question and answers. Here's the reason why. Because there is no authority except from God. God's placed them there. This does not mean that God approves of all the governing authorities. He approves of their policies or their life. doesn't mean that means he's placed them there for his purposes. You see that all throughout the Bible. Wicked leaders, corrupt leaders, failed leaders, good leaders, bad leaders. He puts all of them in place for his purposes. 
For there is no authority except from God, and, and, that, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's what the Bible teaches. So when do you disobey a leader? You disobey when they tell you to sin, to go against God's will. Look at Daniel and his friends as the example of that. Look at the apostles in Acts 5 when the government tries to control what the church does in preaching the gospel. Sorry, can't obey. We got to obey God. But in everything else, we're subject to the governing authorities. And even in 1 Peter, this, this gives us a credible testimony to the world. David knows this. He's not going to touch God's anointed. God has placed Saul there as king. He's not going to touch him. Now, total side note, Christians also believe in just war. They also believe from Romans chapter 13 that the government does not bear the sword in vain. So the government can't punish. This doesn't mean that if there's an authority who's evil, uh, just sorry, police officers, you can't arrest him. He's a city council member. Sorry, can't do anything about it. No, no, the police force is part of the government where they go and arrest the corrupt city council member, whoever it may be. So, so justice is to be done here on earth by the governing authorities. That's what the government's meant to do. Punish bad, reward good, Romans 13. So there is a time for justice to be done. But when it's a personal offense here, like David and Saul, David's going to leave it up to the Lord. He's going to leave it up to the Lord to deal with Saul. David's heart is troubled when he tears the corner of Saul's robe. That should tell us something. David says three times that Saul is the Lord's anointed. We're meant to learn something here from David. But then we see Saul going out of the cave, and then David goes and calls out after him. The, the understanding is that Saul didn't know David was in the cave. Saul probably gets a distance away. We don't know what time of day it was. Was it morning? Was it night? Was, it, was the sun down so Saul couldn't look back and see David? He just heard his voice. We don't know, but evidently Saul doesn't know exactly if it's David or not. It's hard to not know that after the speech of David's, but Listen to what David says as he calls after Saul. Verse 8, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King, my Lord. He says, My Master, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. So he doesn't just call him Lord and point to his kingship. He bows down like he would to a king because Saul is the king. And pays homage to him. This does, not be, this does not mean that David says, I love all of your policies, Saul. Especially the one where you come after me. I agree with everything you do. In today's vernacular, he's, he's honoring the office of the king. And the fact that God placed him there. Verse 9. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Why are you listening to people that say, I'm trying to kill you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some people told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, maybe held it up here. I could have killed you. See that robe you're wearing? Look at the bottom of it. It's missing a part. It's right here. I sliced it off. 
I could have killed you. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. David pleads his innocence before Saul. Why can David say this? Here's why, verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. David's leaving it to the Lord's judgment. One day the Lord will say, David, you were the righteous one in this instance. Saul was the unrighteous one. David's leaving it up to that. He's saying, I'm not going to be the one to bring the justice. God is. He's going to say it again in verse 15. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. The Lord's going to judge. I'm not going to be the one that brings the judgment. Not by my hand. Verse 13, then he cites a proverb of that day. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. So David pulls on an ancient proverb and says, wicked people do wicked things. What's David saying there? I didn't wickedly kill you, therefore I'm not wicked here. I'm not harming you. I'm not doing you any wrong. I'm not unrighteous. Out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. David's not doing wickedness. After whom has the king, verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? Why 3,000 men coming after me? It's like, you're, it's like you're amassing this great army to come after a dead dog or a flea. It's foolish. Verse 15 again, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. May the Lord. Saul, I'm asking the Lord to be the judge of this matter and to deliver me from your hand. I've done nothing wrong. Now Saul speaks. And it starts off rather anticlimactically. As soon as David had finished. I mean, that's a great speech. Wow. What a man of God. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Like, total low moment. Like, that great speech. Is that you, David? Oh, come on, Saul. Of course it's David. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul weeps. I mean, just put yourself in the sandals of Saul. People are telling you that David wants to be king you're worried about holding on to your kingdom. You're upset that your son isn't going to be the next king if David gets his way. You're afraid. We know Saul was fearful. You're afraid. You think that if you get this big army, you've just traveled 30 miles from, from where they're at, from Saul's hometown is 30 miles south. You've traveled 30 I mean, you're tired. You're pursuing this guy. I, I mean, you can't find him. You're afraid he's going to take your kingdom. That's all of that. And then he comes out and says, I've got your robe. I could have killed you. I'm not going to wrong you. Right there, Saul's convicted of his wickedness and David's righteousness. And Saul's going to say that. Immediate conviction to the point of tears. Have you ever been convicted to the point of tears? Saul's convicted to the point of tears. He weeps. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. Because you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. 
And you have declared this day how you have dealt with, well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. You're righteous, I'm not. I've been chasing you. You had me in your possession, I didn't even know it, and you didn't kill me. You're more righteous than I am. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? The normal answer to that is no. David found his enemy and let him go away safe. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now listen, behold, I know that you shall surely be king. This is the first time Saul said that in this book. Jonathan has known David's going to be king. Other people have known he's going to be king. We weren't told when Saul understood this. But here, in response to persecuted David's offer of mercy, Saul says, I know that you're going to be king. This is so good. David, David doesn't, or Saul doesn't say to David, as Saul's in handcuffs and 600 men have him at spear point, he doesn't say, okay, I get it, you're going to be king. He says it as he's been pursuing David to kill him, and David lets him go and shows him mercy. That's what gets Saul to say, I get it, you're going to be king. Doesn't that sound like the centurion at the cross of Jesus Christ? The Gospel of Mark told us that Jesus is the Son of God. Told us that earlier on. Told the reader that right away, early on. Chapter 1, verse 1. Gospel of Mark says Jesus is the Son of God. All throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, people don't seem to get that. His followers don't get that. The demons say it. They know. No one gets that he's the Son of God. And then Jesus dies on the cross, suffers, and extends mercy. He prays, Father, forgive them, these ones killing me. They know not what they do. He dies. And in Mark 15, the centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. The mercy of God astounds sinners. The mercy of David astounds Saul. The mercy of Jesus astounds the centurion. The mercy of God is astounding because none of us deserve to live but he's merciful. And David demonstrates the character of God here and shows mercy. And Saul says, you're going to be king. Verse 20, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And then he asks for something that many kings would ask for in this situation as they're in front of the one who's going to take their place. Verse 21, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. So, so don't kill the rest of my family members. Again, we've talked about this before, because that's what you do when you become king. You kill all the threats to your kingship. So you took over for this guy's family. You're going to kill the rest of his family, so they're no longer a threat to you, and you can reign in peace. So Saul says, please don't do that. Please don't kill my family. Swear to me that you won't do this. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off, interesting verb, as he just cut off his robe, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. David had sworn, made this promise before, though, right? Not to Saul, but to Jonathan, Saul's son. I'm not going to kill everyone in your family. I'm not going to do that. Then Saul went home. 
You might think right there, Saul repented. No, Saul was convicted. Being convicted of sin doesn't mean you've repented of sin. Just wait two chapters. Tries to kill David again. Being convicted by your sin, being sorrowful about your sin, doesn't mean you've repented. It simply means you feel bad about your sin. Judas felt bad about his sin. Saul felt bad about his sin. But not to the point of repentance. So Saul leaves David's men. Who knows what they said right now? Maybe they, you know, patted David on the shoulders and said, you'll never have to deal with him again. Well, the last phrase says, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. They went up to their little fortress. I don't think David and his men actually believed that Saul would stop pursuing. That was great. Won this battle by the providence of God, by the mercy of God, but we're still going to go back to our stronghold. That's wise. Because again, wait two chapters, David. Saul will come after you. But notice here, just to make sure we grab a couple things from this last paragraph, Saul is <clears throat> convicted by David's mercy. Saul says a lot of right and good things in this paragraph. This is one of the longest accounts of Saul's speech in the book. And it's pretty good. You're righteous, I'm not. You could have killed me, you didn't. You're going to be king. I mean, that's good, but it's not lasting. It's a momentary conviction of sin that doesn't lead to true repentance. It's not truly lasting. Saul makes a personal request. That personal request is going to be fulfilled by David. He's already promised that to Jonathan. And we're going to see that at the end of this book, 1 Samuel 31, Saul and his son Jonathan are going to die. Spoiler alert, I gave you the ending. They're going to die. And 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel originally written as one book. We're just going to cover the first. 2 Samuel chapter 1, David's now the king. And 2 Samuel chapter 9, David does good to the family of Saul. He actually asks one of his servants, hey, is there anybody left in Saul's house that I can do good to? David keeps the promise that Jonathan has made, requested, and that Saul has requested. Let's, let's learn some things here as the 21st century people of God from this passage. Three lessons for righteous sufferers. Here's the first lesson to learn. The righteous will suffer and then be vindicated. The righteous, and I, I use that phrase because Saul speaks of David as righteous in verse 17. The righteous will suffer and then be vindicated. This is not just something that David's going to go through. God has promised that all of his followers would suffer and then go to glory. This is what made Jesus so hard to understand, right? I'm the son of man. They, they love son of man. That, that was like a victorious term. Yes, you're the son of man, and the son of man's going to suffer and die. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, Lord. And then again, what did our study of the gospel of Mark teach us? Jesus didn't stop his teaching there. Not only is the son of man going to suffer and die, you're going to follow in my footsteps. You're going to suffer as well. Jesus promises that his followers will suffer 
It'll be a hard life. It'll be difficult. There will be persecution. There'll be trials. There'll be difficulties. There's suffering. But that's not the end of the story. Because look, Jesus rose from the dead and went to glory. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 calls him after the resurrection the first fruits. Well, what's coming after him? Us. We'll go with him to glory. So they're suffering first and then glory. This is what David goes through, suffering and then kingship. Jesus, suffering and then the crown, the, the exaltation that God gives him. Jesus goes through this, David goes through this, and all followers of God go through this. We go through suffering first and then comes the glory. The righteous will suffer and then be vindicated. Sometimes... When we suffer at the hands of other people, maybe it's just something evil they said about us or wrong they said about us, or maybe it's something they've physically done to us or they've lied about us or they've persecuted us, whatever it may be. Sometimes those wrongs are righted here on earth. They come to their senses and they repent and they confess, or the governing authorities take them away and they pay for what they did wrong. Sometimes wrongs are righted here on earth. And sometimes they're not. And sometimes we wait. And it's not easy. But I want you to remember, the righteous will suffer and then they will be vindicated. This is promised all throughout the Bible. Any wrong done to you will go punished, either on the person who perpetrated it, or if they repent of that and trust in Christ, Christ will pay for the wrong they've done to you has already paid for the wrong they've done to you. So every wrong will be punished. Every single one. Every disrespectful roll of the eyes, every murder, every single one will be punished. Every one. Praise God for His justice. Again, we got a hint of this when Hannah had her baby and she sang her song. Remember what she said in chapter 2? Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Why? Because the Lord is a God of knowledge. And then she said this, And by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Hannah told uh, told us this at the beginning of the book. Kind of gave us a preview of a theme throughout the book. The strong, arrogant ones, the ones who hurt people, in her case, the one who, the one was the, her opponent, her rival, mocking her for her childlessness, don't be arrogant. The Lord sees all of this. Your bow is going to be broken, and the feeble one is going to be strong. See this in David and Goliath. See it in David, who's just got 600 ragtag men, and, Gal- and Saul has 3,000 chosen men. The bows of the strong ones are going to be broken, and the feeble David are going to bind on strength. That's what God has been teaching us throughout this book. The wicked will pay, and the righteous will be vindicated. Sometimes it happens now, and as I told you, sometimes it happens on the day of judgment and in hell. The story about a Scottish covenanter uh, in the 1600s, faithful man of God named James Guthrie. James Guthrie 
had the audacity to write that the king of England was not the head of the church. He said, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And that's not something that you wrote publicly back then if you wanted to keep your life. Well, James Guthrie did it. He wrote that the king of England was not the head of the church, but that Christ was. And so he was sentenced to death by hanging. He preached a final sermon. It's a great sermon, an evangelistic sermon, where he offers his hearers the free grace of Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel as he died. He actually took the notes from his sermon and gave them to a friend and asked his friend to give them to his young son, who was too young to understand what was going on, and asked, give my notes to my son when he gets older, when he can understand these words. Gave the notes to his friend to give to his son later. He died. He was hanged. He, uh, his head was then cut off and put on a spike and set out in public for 27 years until a faithful student one day went and took it and buried it appropriately. It was a message. Don't go against the king. After his death and his, after his head was cut off, some of his friends, that most people think, some ladies uh, grabbed some napkins, may have been like handkerchiefs, and dipped them into his blood. And in that day and age, people thought, are you being superstitious with this? I mean, Rome was superstitious about all that stuff, the Roman Catholic Church. And these ladies said, no, this isn't about superstition. It's not why we dip these into blood. Here's what they said. We intend not to abuse it to superstition or idolatry, these bloody napkins, but to hold that bloody napkin up to heaven with our address that the Lord would remember the innocent blood that is spilt. They wanted these bloody napkins so that when they prayed, they would say, Lord, do something about this. Reminds us of Revelation 6, doesn't it? The martyrs weeping, praying, how long until you vindicate, our, vindicate our, us from our death? How long will you right these wrongs? How long before justice is done? And then what do we see in Revelation 19? Jesus comes and does justice to the enemies of the martyrs, punishes those who have killed his people. Justice will be done. Sometimes it's done here on earth. Sometimes it's done in heaven. And the call for the believer, the righteous one, is to wait. Wait for God's timing. Second lesson for the righteous sufferer, the righteous do that. They wait for God's timing. So, so the first point is that God will bring about justice. We will suffer and we will be vindicated. But now we have to wait. The righteous wait for God's timing. David knows that he will be king. And he waits for God's timing. In this way, David points us forward to Jesus Christ. As soon as Jesus is baptized, time for the public ministry to start. Holy Spirit, where are you going to send him? Are you going to send him to a blind man? Are you going to send him to a deaf man? Where are you going to send him? What's he going to do? The Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 4, sends him to the wilderness. Holy Spirit brings him to Satan. Brings him to the wilderness. Satan tempts him three times. One of the temptations, 
if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world, Satan being in control of the evil rulers. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. They will all worship you. You just bow down to me. Did Jesus do it? No. Listen, Jesus will receive all the kingdoms of the world, but he's going to earn them by his suffering and death. And the rest of the Gospel of Matthew shows Jesus showing that he's God, showing his power, showing his authority, suffering all the way through, suffering, 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 dying on the cross. And then Matthew 28, the end of the book of Matthew, all authority has been given to me. I'm in charge of everything. Jesus received all the kingdoms, receives the worship, and will one day, will only receive worship from all people who are living and bringing praise to him. Jesus will receive that, but he's going to get it through his suffering. And we all say a hearty amen to that or else we'd still be in our sins. Jesus suffered and endured, died in our place so that we would be saved. And what does he get in response to that? The praise and worship and adoration of the nations. The nations have been called the reward of Jesus' suffering. Every tribe, tongue, and nation giving glory to him singing to him, loving him, enjoying him, worshiping him. Jesus waited. He waited. So how do you endure suffering? Will you know that Jesus perfectly did it in your place? Have you ever been patient, been patient, and then lost your patience? Jesus forgives. And God will treat you as if you've been perfectly patient your whole life. It's amazing. How do you endure suffering, though? You look to Jesus, not just as your forgiver, but also your strength. The same power that is in Jesus is the power that you have by the Holy Spirit of God. One of the fruits of the Spirit is that you've been given patience. So you wait, and it's not easy but you can do it. Recently, someone asked me, just rehearsing a number of sad things going on just worldwide that many of us know, and even just locally, how do you handle all the sadness? That's a really good question. How do you handle all the sadness? I mean, just one piece of bad news after the next, some on the news and then some with a friend. Some on the internet that you see, and then some with a family member. Just one more instance of bad news after another. How do you handle all of it? And as soon as I was asked that question, my mind went back to songs that we sing in this room. We sing Psalm 130. I will wait for you, and on your word, I will rely. How how do I handle it? Try to sing the Bible. Try to remember what we sing. I'll wait. God's called me to wait. It's another song that comes to mind. A song that starts, about, starts off asking, do you feel the world is broken? And the audience responds, the, the antiphonal response is, we do. It's this new song called, Is He Worthy? by Andrew Peterson. He asks this question, is all creation groaning? 
And the great choir says, it is. He says, is a new creation coming? And the choir says, it is. Then he asks the question, is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. And then this, is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. We need to remember what's coming one day to help fortify us so that we can wait. Third and finally, third and final lesson. So the righteous ones will suffer and then be vindicated. The righteous wait for God's timing. Finally, the righteous show mercy. The righteous ones show mercy. David showed mercy and then persuaded his men to show mercy. When treated wrongly, David showed mercy. Jesus told us that when our enemies hate us, we are to love our enemies. That's an act of mercy. Listen, the church has enemies, but it's not because we call them enemies. They're the mission. They're the objects of our love. They're the objects of the grace that we're going to show them because God has shown us grace. They're enemies because they call themselves enemies. Okay? Jesus tells us, you love your enemies. David here called Saul Lord, bowed to him, didn't kill him. That's an example of mercy. And there's so much to learn from David, isn't there, in this passage? I mean, a good prayer would be, Lord, help me to follow in David's footsteps because he's following in your sons, <laughs> or he's, lead, he's giving the, 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 the picture of what your son's going to be. Let me follow in your son's footsteps, Lord. Sometimes we think of ourselves always as the good guy in the passage, but for a moment, think of yourself as Saul going after the Lord's anointed. Every time we sin, it's in opposition to a good God. Sometimes we can act as if we're the enemies of God. We all certainly did this before we were Christians. Again, Colossians 1, which we often refer to, says that we were enemies, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, enemies of God. Ephesians says that we're enemies of God before Christ. We're no longer enemies, but the Bible teaches that before Christ, we are enemies of God. But we've been shown mercy through Jesus Christ. Listen to these words of Saul and imagine them being our words even to God. You have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me. Saul to David, me to God. I haven't been all that God has called me to be. I haven't been righteous before God. None of us have. But He's done us good and not evil. He has not killed us. He has given us life. He has given us forgiveness. He has shown His mercy to us. David waited to become king. And in that, he showed mercy to Saul. Jesus died to become king. And in that, he showed us all mercy, the mercy of God. David waited to become king. Jesus died to become king. And we see the mercy behind both of those. 
So if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to see the mercy of David here and know that there would be one coming after David in David's own family line, Jesus Christ, who came to give mercy to sinners. Please don't be like Saul, who was convicted. Yes, I know I've made some bad decisions. I feel horrible about that, even maybe to the point of tears, and then does nothing with that. The kindness of God is meant to lead us not to being convicted, but is meant to lead us to repentance. So if you know that you've sinned against God, know that He's merciful and come all the way to Him and say, I trust you to forgive me. I'm yours. I want to rest in you. I don't want to pay for all my sins myself. I'm asking that you would do that, Jesus Christ. And I want to be right with you. That's repentance and trusting in Christ. And for Christians, I think the last thing I'd say here is, let's be awed all over again by the mercy of God. (laughs) I'm not a big fan of saying in the Old Testament, okay, you're this character and this person's this character, but just for a moment, hang with me. (laughs) There's a lot of Saul in us going after God's anointed not responding rightly to God's anointed, trying to protect our own kingdom, and so we wrongly view God's servant, whatever it may be. But God has shown mercy to Saul through David. God has shown mercy to you and I through Jesus Christ. We stand in mercy. We are not God's enemy. We are part of God's family because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that We were once your enemy, and now we're seated at your table. We were once angry, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, but you've reconciled us to yourself. You initiated reconciliation with us. You could have destroyed, but you didn't. You saved. And so, Father, I want to thank you for forgiving all of our sins. Thank you for bringing us home Thank you for the protection you give us. And we know that there are many suffering in this room, outside of this room. We pray that you would give them the endurance to wait. Give them the confidence of the coming vindication that they have. Give us hope in the second coming. And Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would come soon. While you delay for your purposes, which we trust We pray that we would be faithful in our suffering. We pray that we would be a mouthpiece for you as we point people to your mercy and to your grace. And we pray that you'd make us strong, make us enduring, give us strength to stand for you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.